90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Getting towards the end of the semester, so not looking forward to grading everything, but looking forward to not teaching for a little while. So how about you? <laughs> oh, doing pretty well also. We're starting to get geared up for heading to a couple conferences, teaching a short course. And, you know, I've been watching my Christmas lights go crazy after last week. When, <laughs> uh, we had some of our listeners start <laughs> tweeting about it. Uh, I mean, if you want to say five blinks is going crazy, John, I'll just let you, I'll let you say <laughs> that. That's okay. <laughs> no, I found out that getting tagged in a Twitter conversation with many, many folks uh, can result in an entire Saturday afternoon of your Christmas tree drinking. I didn't even think about doing that. I'm going to go on and write something incendiary and just write discuss and have you get tagged in it <laughs> back yeah. and forth. That's a brilliant tactic. Way to go. Way to go, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so before we dive into this week's show, I actually had a little bit of listener feedback with regard to last week. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. So as it turns out, there are multiple people that were interested and have opinions on the what calculator do you use on your <laughs> iDevice question. <laughs> I love that that's the one out of these whole two shows. Like, that's the yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, and so listener Bart wrote in and said that he has an app that is the HP15C app. Nice. Which emulates the HP15C calculator that's on your brilliant. iDevice. That is brilliant. And he says that RPN isn't an option on it, of course, with emphasis on the word option. It is the operation style of the 15C. Uh, and he says, of course, for anything beyond that, he uses actually a Python console. So something like oh. Pythonista on his iPad. Okay, nice. I don't know what that so, is. So I'll just keep using my TI-85. <laughs> so there are a couple of other options out there for folks that were curious. But without further delay, I'm pretty excited for this week's show. We've got a couple of guests coming on to talk to us about the Earth Archive, right? Exactly. Um, we are super excited to welcome Chris Jackson and Thomas Narak to our show. So Chris and Tom, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Great. Thanks for having us. Having his mic problem. Okay. So we usually like to start with um, you guys telling us about your background. So who are you and how did you guys get where you are? Tom can go first. His story is far more dramatic than mine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, I'm probably the uh, the oddball in the bunch. I am uh, an assistant professor in uh, computer science. Um, I had a bit of a kind of interesting winding career path. Um, I actually started off in uh, earth sciences, uh, physics in particular. Um, I was in graduate school for physics and thought I wanted to study various aspects of, of earth science. And... Somewhere along the way, got really intrigued by the, the data and the computing side of things, and so switched over to uh, computing and information technology for my PhD, um, and now I'm in a computer science department, um, but never really gave up the interest in earth science. So I, I love working alongside earth scientists and using earth science as an application area um, for computing. Uh, and so in particular, I like to work with intelligent uh, information systems, um, various aspects of, of AI and, and data science, and looking at how we can use those technologies to make our science a little bit more uh, efficient and have our computers be 
uh, a little bit more intelligent um, colleagues and help us analyze this vast amount of, of data sets that we now find ourselves working with. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's, that's that you're that out of bad company here because that sounds exactly like John. So. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so an yeah. excellent company then. Ex exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we, we always say that Shannon's a geologist that uh, tolerates technology, and I'm a technologist that tolerates <laughs> geology. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> you make a great pair then, it sounds like. Well, probably similar to you guys. Yeah, yeah so Chris, what so about I'm, you? I'm the one who tolerates technology um, in the yep. bunch of, this, of two. Um, yeah, so my name is Chris Jackson. I work at Imperial College in London, in, in England. Um, I'm a straight-up geologist, rock botherer. So um, I did my uh, bachelor's in geology. I did a PhD in geology as well. Um, a lot of field work. So actually, the stereotypical view of a geologist with a hammer wandering around in the desert collecting rock samples, that was actually me. Um, and kind of in addition to field geology, I got very interested in geophysics as well. So seismic reflection technology. So sort of x-rays under the earth and how we might use those data and boreholes, so when we drill into the ground, how we can use the kind of remote sensing data and the borehole data to understand how um, basically the Earth's crust deforms, so how we build mountains and how we uh, split apart the Earth's plates, so plate tectonics. Um, so I've just kind of followed on that path, really, um, just having a lot of fun in lots of different parts of the world, either in the field or using remote sensing data and subsurface data. I don't know about you, John, but this is kind of freaky. It's like talking to our doppelgangers. <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a little strange, but I do appreciate that my doppelganger has a really great accent. So. <laughs> I'm just putting it on for the podcast. I'm really from Louisiana. No, that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what we both do. My geophysics interest is in meteorology, but that's okay. It's all the same physics. Yeah. <laughs> So what what we brought you all on here to talk about was the the Earth Archive. And this is something that I don't think a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with. It's, it's a pretty new thing. Uh, but the concept of archive and the whole publishing process in general is not all that familiar to everybody listening to the show. But could you start out by giving a, a summary of what the Earth Archive is? Uh, sure. So the Earth Archive is a service for uh, research preprints. Um, and the idea behind a preprint is that you want to publish your, your work for um, citation, for review, for comment and feedback, um, but you want to publish it before it's gone through the formal peer review process. And so I know that's, um, for most academics, that's the publication model that, that we're most familiar with is that we send it off to a, a journal, um, you know, we wait several months and then we get back some reviews. Um, and, and really, you know, we're, we're not opposed to that model. We just want to complement it because during those months, sometimes years, while your research is off being peer reviewed, it, you know, you have no means of citing it. You have no means of referencing it in, um, for instance, grant proposals or other research. Uh, and so the idea as a preprint is that I can put it out there publicly. Um, it's available for anyone to, to download and review. It's all open access. Um, and so it's out there for public consumption, um, and this does not preclude me um, from formal peer review. It's just something in addition to formal peer review. And you know, as you kind of uh, mentioned, you know, the original impetus for this was something called Archive, which started in 
um, out of the physics, math, and computer science communities. Um, so it's really been around in those communities for, I'd say, roughly 20 years now. Uh, but it's really the idea of putting your research out before peer review is very new to Earth scientists, and that's something we're trying to build a community around with um, with Earth Archive and provide the actual technical infrastructure to support publishing those preprints. Okay, so th there's definitely some questions I have about putting your work out there before peer review, but before we even get to that, what made made you guys start the archive what was the impetus to start it and how did you get hooked up together to start this whole project rolling um i i can respond to that so um like tom says the motivation was pretty clear um the benefits of um using preprint servers and how they may assist and augment the typical kind of peer review journal uh, approach for publishing so um why we started it that you know that that's kind of founded in in, in wanting to uh, to improve things and to add to how we the the, the ways we, we we try and solve this scholarly communication issue um how we got to know each other it was it was through um through chance we met in a bar no it was actually um <laughs> it, well, we kind of did i mean we we, we met by i guess esip um so one of the uh, science information partners who um, do a lot around trying to corral scientists in terms of open science, open communication, and, and geoscience communication in general. Um, there'd been a, a, a before I turned up, sort of earlier this year. There'd been a lot of discussions about trying to start a preprint server specifically for earth sciences, and I kind of got into that via talking to some people at Open Science Framework who provide the infrastructure for Earth Archive. Um, so Tom and I directly kind of met through a personal introduction because I was saying, I want to learn more about this. And uh, Matt Spitzer, who's at Open Science Framework, was saying, well, you should speak to Tom Narok because he's been one of the people spearheading it from the ESIP side. Um, and they're trying to get more global, because um, we want this to be a global thing, they're trying to get more global involvement. And me being across the pond was an ideal kind of um, way of, of, of trying to spread the word of uh, Earth Archive at the time, which didn't have a name, but just the idea of having a preprint server for Earth Sciences. I wish it involved beers and uh, meeting at a bar. <laughs> no, but, uh, yes. <laughs> hopefully we can add that at some it's point. It's a digital bar uh, called the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Not nearly as no. there's question, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, just echoing what, what Chris was saying, I just, um, you know, our friends at the Center for Open Science who are hosting the infrastructure um, for Earth Archive um, kind of virtually introduced us, and I kind of just sent an email out of the blue saying, hey, Chris, this is what we're thinking about doing. And he said, hey, that sounds great. I, w I want to get on board. And we just kind of started a grassroots effort from there. So it sounds like this was really, you know, a larger open science community sort of push to begin it then. Yeah, I mean, they, they, uh, yeah. Yeah, they've been, I mean, there'd been sort of discussions amongst those. And then I guess what I would say is the people who were sort of aware of preprints preprint servers, archive, bio-archive, some of the more recently growing ones, they were very aware of it, and that community was readied to do something about it, but there was still a large part of the community, including myself, who weren't aware of those things. But by getting involved in it, you learn a lot, right? So rather than kind of standing around the, the fringes sort of saying, what is it, I don't understand, I was just thinking, well, there's one way of learning about something which notionally feels really great is to actually kind of to 
not spearhead it because it's a big effort on with lots of people, but to really get my hands dirty with uh, with Tom trying to set it up. Yeah, that's well. Of course, geologists can't do this because we don't know enough about computers to actually <laughs> get this started. So, um, but I think a lot of we've talked a lot on this podcast um, about sort of how academia works, and I guess maybe so that's the importance of having it. But what exactly is this prepent like? Obviously, you want to get your stuff out there. I mean, but that's what this is. Is this a paper that's already been accepted? Is it a paper that you're just writing and sort of putting out there as you're revising it yourself? Or how does that work? Uh, actually, it, it could be both. Um, okay. So, so the, the typical, well, so a preprint itself is usually a not, something that has not been peer reviewed for, uh, peer reviewed yet, excuse me. Um, it, it's typically a polished paper in the sense that it's ready to be submitted for peer review. So it's not just some very preliminary work. You've kind of have enough together that you have a manuscript that you would feel comfortable either presenting at a conference or um, in, a, in a peer review journal. Uh, and so you, you can, you write it up as a, a formal paper and Earth Archive is the uh, infrastructure. It's a, a website with some um, technology behind it that allows you to upload the paper and make it immediately available um, for, for consumption. So an author would take their work there, they can upload the paper, fill out a little bit of, of metadata um, about who the, the co-authors were, what are the keywords that describe some of the topics and, and things like that. Um, and one of the things that we're trying to do with Earth Archive is to have scientists start thinking a little bit beyond the paper in the sense that we're also also offering the capability to upload um, data sets that were used in the paper. You have the capability to um, upload software that you use to do your analysis with. Anything that would help um, one of your colleagues uh, you know, reproduce the work or make better use of the, the preprint uh, manuscript. So in, in its basic form, it's a, a paper, um, but we'd also like to start having people think about adding all these additional resources as well. And Earth Archive is providing the, the web infrastructure to upload and, and make these things available to, to other researchers. So what are some of the limits on if, if I were to upload the data that go with my paper, sometimes, especially for either large field campaigns or that kind of thing, that, that data can get really large. So what's the limitation to what I can upload with my paper in terms of data volume right now? Uh, so at the moment, we have limits only on individual files. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chris. I think, is it five it's, gigabytes? Yes, it is five gigs, yeah. Okay. So it's, it's five gigabytes per file, um, but there's no upper limit on total disk space that you can use. So you can um, upload as many files as you need to, as long as they're under five gigabytes each. Uh, we also offer... Um, and again, this is through the Center for Open Science who is um, providing this infrastructure, the, the capability to, to link to data sets and software that might be hosted uh, other places. Um, our, our end goal is really to just make preprint publication as um, easy as possible on, on the researcher. And so if you already have data that's something like Dropbox or Figshare or one of these um, other services that are, that are popular today, uh, we have the capability that you can just directly link your paper to those existing resources. Yeah, it's probably worth adding as well. Um, so it's not just preprints, we also host postprints. So postprints being a paper which has been published or has been accepted, it could have been accepted yesterday, 
or it could have been published 50 years ago. So that, in that sense, it acts as a repository for published material, which, with given you know, copyright permissions from the publishers allowing, we can host that as well. So that's another kind of weird thing actually that came out of this in the first like month or so is that there's quite a lot of countries and and people who don't have access to institutional repositories for, for archiving their own work and if they don't want to be if you don't want to be running your own website for 10 pounds a year or 20 dollars a year we provide that service as well so your research which you've already published can be made available globally for free and legally so postprints are a really important part of of what earth archive offers so there's preprints and postprints, but do you archive or plan to archive things like posters as well or conference abstracts? Uh, yes, it, that is a that's possible, but it's not been the main thrust, Tom, of what we've really tried to do at the moment, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, we it, it would certainly fit in with. I mean, the, the technology would allow for it, but um, we've kind of been very much focused on. Um, papers and, and data sets and um, so I would say it, as Chris was mentioning it's not our main focus right now but uh, I don't know we may revisit yeah. it again in the future yeah, and it's fair to say things like Figshare exist already which are very yeah. focused and, and deliver that very well and there will be ESO or AGU's preprint server launching next year and, and posters are going to be a big part of their world so to be honest we see no need really to promote and um advertise that as one of our like flagship services services if you will so i guess those like not as um familiar with why we would even want to do this i mean we kind of touched on it already but you know it's a really important thing that we keep our science moving forward right so as you guys said, I mean, the whole point is because you don't want to wait around for the publishing process, right? Like, that's that's the value of having the service. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like, a, a personal story, so I won't give you the kind of, uh, you know, the boilerplate answer. So we, we posted a preprint um, yesterday uh, on Earth Archive, some work which we're going to submit to a journal soon, and w today we've already had a couple of communications which initially started on Twitter from people saying, oh my word, this is amazing, we've been working on similar things, we need to talk about this, and it would be good to kind of get together and, and chat more about the science in this paper and how it complements this other approach we've had, right? So instantly there, there's an amazing dynamism around the research pro pro process, isn't there? Rather than that, I send it to the editor, the editor sends it to two people, it's all kind of you know smoke and mirrors and rather kind of daggers in the, in the dark, and you don't really know what happens, then this paper either lives or dies in a year's time. So we can already generate that sort of um, discussion. So for me, in that in that respect, it's it's not that million miles away from giving a talk at a conference about a new piece of work, right? So you you stand up on stage and you talk about something, then you roll into the bar or to the icebreaker afterwards, and then you start talking to people about the science you just presented, and and you start that very dynamic sort of way of interacting with your fellow scientists, and and that for me is. Um, you can hopefully sense from me. That's one of the things I think is really exciting about this. So it really is a virtual bar. It I, is. Like <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the other side of that coin, not to be the cynical one, because I'm usually not, sort of. Um, aren't you afraid about, I mean, wouldn't you be afraid about putting your stuff out there and getting scooped? Um, well, no, because I think scooping... Scooping can happen anyway, right? 
So skipping can happen anyway. And yeah, in fact, if you actually put it on a preprint server, um, rather than standing up at a conference, there's a timestamp and a DOI attributed, right? So instantly you have provenance and, and priority assured. And okay. also, you know, if we okay. think the best of scientists, it's in my experience, I've been sort of an academic for um, about 15 years now. It's incredibly rare because people are very, very protective of their reputations. I mean, if you go around scooping, it's usually pretty clear that it's happened and everybody knows who it is and, and, it's, and it's, it's not irrecoverable, that professional damage, but it's yeah. certainly very hard to get back a reputation for it. So I think the scooping issue is going to be, first, I think it's going to be limited by, by how we conduct ourselves as scientists, but also in the rare case it happens, I just think the positive still, you know, they, they, you have to weigh up that, that chance, I guess, put everybody on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't know what you think, Tom. I mean, you've, you've. I mean, I'm not sure if it's different in different parts of earth sciences. No, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's. I mean, it's cer certainly something we need to be aware of and and keep you know be vigilant about. But, um, you know, my expectation is that it's going to be a, a self-correcting problem. That you know, is yes, it may happen here and there. But as Chris was touching on, I think you know, it, you have the provenance of when you post it to the preprint server. You have a. Uh, you know, a citable DOI. It's it's fairly easy to go back and lay claim that it was actually your original work. And um, so, yeah, I think we may see a few cases here and there. But our, my hope is that it will kind of um, you know correct itself as we move along. Right. So that's one of the questions I actually had a little bit later was when I upload something to Earth Archive. So I do actually get a DOI and something that others and myself can cite immediately or does it go through some kind of uh not peer review but some kind of a qa process with you all or what happens there? Uh, yes you do you get a doi uh immediately so as soon as you uh finish filling out the the form and you attach your your paper and any associated materials you want to upload uh, you click submit and you're immediately given uh, a doi and a citation for your your preprints um there is no moderation in the sense that you know anything that's comparable to formal peer review we don't send it out and ask people to to read through it and and you know offer um, comments before we accept it uh, we do have an advisory board who does scan through all of the submissions and that's very at a very high level we just want to make sure it is on a topic that's relevant for earth archive that it's within the, the scope of of our service um, you know, if not, we may reject it and, and uh, suggest that they uh, submit somewhere else. But um, we're, we're not doing any um, actual review of the science. It's just it's immediately given a DOI and it uh, immediately becomes available for everyone. Okay, so I, I've submitted my work to Earth Archive, let's say, and now I'm going to go ahead and take that pretty much publication-ready draft that I've got but I wanted to get out there and I'm going to go submit that to a journal. When I'm submitting to the journal, there's always this question on the forum of how much of this work has been published or presented prior to submission. So in that case, is that somewhere where I have to put a hundred percent in that box? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question uh, <laughs> because it really uh, varies from journal to journal. Um, some journals are very accepting of preprints and they don't consider it prior publication um, they allow anything that existed as a preprint to be uploaded as um, a new submission to, to their journals 
other journals have different policies on preprints and do expect you to check that box that it has been um, 100% presented somewhere else and published somewhere else. Uh, so it's really a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we are really advocating that our, our users, you know, please do their due diligence and um, check with the, with the journal that you're interested in submitting. Um, check with them before you upload to Earth Archive because we don't want to disqualify someone from, from future publication. Um, there are some really useful tools in this area. There's a online database um, called uh, Chirpa Romeo, which you can enter the journal that you're thinking about submitting to, and it will tell you the current um, preprint policy for that for those journals. So there are some tools that help you out in this regard. But um, again, we, we would suggest that people really check with the journal before they, they do upload. Yeah, I mean, what's been interesting, actually, with regard to this question is quite a lot of journals have been very proactive about voicing their support for preprints. So um, Nature, Science, um, PNES, um, lots of different organizations have said, we support these and go ahead, you know. So they've been proactive in that space. So that's been very reassuring. Equally, if an author is uncertain about um, whether, you know, she can publish her work, then we encourage them to get in touch with us and we're happy to do a bit of digging in the background because we know quite a few of the policies in some of the uh, journals that we regularly yeah. publish in. And I, I would just add, um, it, it, I, I hate to be the negative one here too, but we have also seen the, the other side of that as well is that since this is such a new topic in, in the field, um, some editors <laughs> are themselves not familiar of what the journal's policy is. Uh, so we, we, we have seen these occasional mix-ups where um, editors assume one policy and journal actually has another. So uh, again, yes, please please check with the journal, check with us. Uh, we will you know, uh, help out as best we can. I'm, so, sort I'm sort of out. laughing because yesterday, ahead of submitting our latest preprint, we had a very humorous exchange with somebody very high up in this journal we were submitting to, or at least in the publications committee, and they were just like, we don't have a policy. And I was kind of like, what, you, do you support <laughs> preprints or not? We don't know. And it was kind of like, <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't quite as bad as we don't even know what the word means, but it wasn't much in board of that. It was kind of, look, just like, go ahead and do this. And so we were like, okay, cool, because like everybody else is doing, it was, it was completely bizarre. So that's how new a lot of this language is, is that people are having to have committee meetings on the fly around their journal, you know, to try and work out how they're going to deal with this very shifting uh, landscape, which is very exciting, but equally a little bit terrifying for some, right, if it's new. So I guess following up on that, I mean, is this a whole preprint thing? I mean, obviously it's really easy with the internet. This wouldn't be something that we would have done pre-internet, but... How much of this is aimed at sort of tearing apart the the status quo academic publishing entities? We don't want to. We don't want to. I mean, I think Tom said it. Maybe one of the first sentences he said was like, you know, it's a way of it's not to challenge and disrupt in a kind of negative sense. It's to complement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I guess Tom, with what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think we're trying to to make it more efficient. Um, I, I, okay. Yeah, I would say I think you know, peer review certainly has its place, and I, you know, I personally I don't want to do away with with formal peer review. I think it's um, in a lot of ways one of the hallmarks of of doing science. But um, you know, I, do, I think do think it's fair to say that it 
it's a bit inefficient and flawed in some areas, and we're just hoping to make the process of um, scientific research a little bit more efficient. Okay, and I love this. That makes total sense. But uh, sort of following on that, how do you keep this from turning into like a YouTube comment section? <laughs> well, it, yeah, get, yeah. That would be no, my. I quite fear. like those personally, but yeah, I know. You... <laughs> 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 that's where I go and hang out. Um, that's a, that's a very kind of common um, concern. Is uh, you know, is it just going to degenerate into a bunch of blog posts? And the the critics yeah. say that. The experience from archive over a couple of decades and the more recent experience from things like BioArchive where they've been tracking this quite closely is that doesn't happen, right? Because, you know, okay. you're a scientist, you want to start writing blog posts and polluting the literature with a load of nonsense. That's going to be damaging for you. And to be honest, you may as well just go and write a blog post rather than trying to get mm -hmm. some credibility by posting on Earth Archive. I don't, I don't think that's going to help and the community will ignore that in the same way let's be honest they may ignore something which has been through peer review which isn't very good so let's not like pretend everything that's peer reviewed is flawless you know so there's already right. post-publication peer review going on in the sense that we read papers that have been published in journals and we decide whether they're good or not um so i i, I don't personally think that's going to happen because you know again reputations are posted alongside the the, the, the science Right, exactly. And I, I like this idea of we're still going to have a peer review process, but this is more of a rapid iteration style approach to doing your work and getting it into the hands of others that can potentially build on it uh, more quickly. Yeah. So in, in that spirit, how how long has the Earth Archive been accepting papers and how many papers have been submitted in that time? Uh, we've been around since mid uh, October. Um, I say so. Chris and I have kind of been trying to build a community around this um, for about a year now. Um, but the system itself formally launched mid-October, started accepting papers. Uh, so in about a month's time, we ha now have 156 preprints that have been submitted. Um, so I guess we're averaging about 25 papers per week. Uh, and it, it's been really interesting looking at the the analytics that the Center for Open Science provides us about Earth Archive to see where they're coming from. And it's been a really interesting uptake that we've gotten submissions from all over the world and that it's really, um, you know, starting to catch on in, in different, not only in different areas of Earth science, um, but also uh, geographically around the world. Right. So earlier you mentioned uh, an AGU effort that was sort of marketing themselves at being able to do posters and all these other things, uh, as well as preprints. So what can you tell us about the AGU effort and how the Earth Archive uh, either complements or competes with that effort? So yeah, AGU are launching ESOR sometime next year. So this is going to be another preprint server covering the whole of the AGU's taxonomy. So Earth Sciences, Cryosphere, biosphere, atmospherics, up into planetary as well. Um, I mean, we know as much as you've probably read about it as well, but one thing we, we know from some of the prior negotiations and prior discussions between ESIP and, and, and AGU is that, you know, posters are going to be one of the bread and butter of, of that effort as well. Um, their infrastructure is, is being delivered by Wiley, so by a commercial publisher, by a, so by a different... Um, a different group to those Edge uh, Science Framework are providing it to Earth Archive and a, and a number of other preprint servers. 
Um, I mean, that's as much as we know, really. I mean, I know they're kind of putting together a advisory board from learned societies, professional societies. I'm not sure about um, broader academic involvement, but it, it, it. Tom, jump in here, but I, I think initially we were, everybody was kind of hesitant because it felt like you know the big beast of AGU was going to come and swallow yeah. up this homespun little thing called Earth Archive. Um, yeah. uh, but it, but actually, it felt like in the end, Tom, that they you know them coming into this space was very supportive and very complimentary to what we were doing yeah i have to admit when i f- first saw their their press release i was <laughs> <laughs> kind of terrified really <laughs> but, oh no you know we've done all this work and here comes this big society and all their resources and you know they're just gonna um you know crush our, our little effort here um but yeah i would just echo what chris was saying i think you know after we thought about it for a little bit we realized oh again here is this big society coming into the uh, preprint space and that is lending credibility to the idea of preprints and and um so yeah i think it's going to be for the positive um you know as chris was mentioning they do have a slightly uh different focus than we do um focusing um part of their efforts on posters but just the fact that you know this big um national um organization has put their their weight behind preprints and said yes this is a good thing and yes we want to talk about these and, and we want to collaborate with Earth Archive and um, have these high-level dis- discussions about preprints. I think it's 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 a really great sign. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think about yeah, it I mean, like, you know, the people who have been hesitant to mean discussions about all the kind of concerns we've kind of touched on already, it just feels like if more of the community, in addition to kind of like homespun operations, but some of the big societies saying this is how we want to generate copy for our publications, for example, is we want this to be discussed widely and openly and we want the best possible copy to come to us in, in, the, in the submission, the initial submission. Surely that's got to be good, hasn't it, to kind of convince people who are sceptical that um, the people who are eventually going to publish their material are saying, no, actually, you should go away and do this because this is the way of making your work better. <laughs> yeah, that's... That, that's a great point, and I think people will become maybe less hesitant or less worried to do this as some of the professional organizations like AGU step up and say, no, you should do this. And in fact, AGU has been vocal about that and about uh, open data as well. And there's an excellent article in EOS recently about that. Okay, so I go on Earth Archive, and I was looking for some paleo mag papers, and I noticed that you guys don't have any on there. What are you waiting for, then? <laughs> Yeah, well. I know exactly. <laughs> you to blame. That's what I thought. Like <laughs> the world is my oyster for this whole thing now. <laughs> um, but but you said that um, you know there's a, a sort of high level once you submit a paper, just making sure it's appropriate, right? So that's sort of all the all the vetting that that gets done there. So it seems like it's pretty easy to actually submit. Yeah, it's yeah. Go ahead, Tom. You want to take that one, Chris? I know you've actually uploaded a number of papers there. Yeah, so, yeah, so yes. <laughs> I haven't been doing my day job. I've just been uploading preprints, yeah. which actually I exactly. firmly believe is my day job. Um, yeah. yeah, so uploading papers to the preprint server is very easy. It takes about 10 minutes, less than that, five minutes. Um, what I would say is the, the only step that takes a little bit of time is sort of like putting in your co-author's details 
So sometimes you, you have to put in the co-authors' names so the metadata is properly collected and also their emails as well. So they'll be alerted to the fact that a preprint or postprint has been posted on Earth Archive. But it is, it, it's, it's as simple as filling out any web form. It, it requires, like you said earlier on, Shannon, I'm technologically challenged and I managed to upload a bunch of preprints. <laughs> And I mean, what I like about it, too, is that, you know, you can upload it in whatever journal format you're trying to go for in the end. Like, there's no really, no really on this Earth Archive, you don't have to stick to a specific format. So that's equally, you know, enticing for somebody to just get their stuff out there. Yeah, well. completely. And I think Tom's point is really good. Like, it should be polished. So we posted four papers, right. or five papers from our group on Earth Archive, and all of them are things that we are proud of and all things that we would be and we have in some cases already submitted to a journal as well in a parallel submission so you know you're not just tossing up any sort of old um, trash you are you're you're posting <laughs> material that with your name alongside it you're proud for your you're, you're happy for your fellow scientists to to read and you come out with this citable thing that most importantly, uh, which I guess maybe a lot of people not in academia would get, you get to use in grant proposals because that's how you get the ball rolling. Yes, and, that, and that's a great point. A lot of funding agencies are now also becoming open to the idea of preprints. And so there's um, several of the prominent ones are now, you, you can cite a preprint in a, a grant funding proposal. Which, so do you also see things like promotion and tenure committees recognizing preprints? I, slowly, um, <laughs> not, not as much as I would like to, um, but I, I, I would say I have seen it here in, uh, well, I, I don't know, really, know so much about promotion and tenure, yeah. but I've seen it in a few job advertisements. Yeah, um, it would be fair to say, I mean, I saw something from, I think it was UT Austin and, um, a couple of other places that were swirling around in social media where people were throwing up screen captures of um, uh, tenure track positions and sort of um, postdoctoral research fellowship positions saying we encourage applicants to uh, attach preprints in support of their application. I just think that's amazing because, you know, you put in press or in prep on your CV to, to kind of, you know, and actually for somebody to actually have a DOI they can click on on a hyperlink on your digital CV and they can find your science and read it and go, yeah, this, this has not been through peer review, but God, if they're producing this quality of work. Do you know what I mean? I think that's really powerful. So that, that was one of my questions, too. I'm uh, chairing a search committee. This is my first. I've been on them several times, but this is my first chairing job. And so when you go through these, you know, tens of CVs and you see this over and over again, you know, in prep or submitted and that's all you have that's a big difference between having that and having this doi that you can click on to see no they're actually doing it it's not all this you know oh yeah i'm writing this paper but look it's actually written and i think this is a huge deal so that's interesting tom for you to say that you've seen that in the job applications as well yeah hopefully we see a lot more of that too yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think that I think that that could make the difference between inviting someone or not, knowing that they're actually producing, like you just said too, Chris. That you know that there's this polished, excellent piece of work 
that just happens to be somewhere in the pipeline, but it's actually out there. Um, so my thought as the end of the year, and maybe you guys too, <laughs> is how are these preprints, do you think they'll ever potentially factor into your annual reviews that you get at your academic jobs? Oh. That's a great question. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, we all yeah. hope so, right? <laughs> I, I would hope so. Um, yeah, I would love to see the day when you know all of this um, factors in you know, preprints. Um, I, I think you know, being involved in creating data sets um, that maybe you haven't done science on, but you've made data available for others to, to use, um, that should be factored in as well. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping this preprint effort and, you know, more broadly, open science in general um, kind of starts stimulating some of the, those discussions and that these um, kind of tangential efforts, as they're thought about now, are actually factored into yeah, to it's, reviews. It's part of a broader set, isn't it? Altmetrics, science yeah. communication, going into local schools, demonstrating things to, you know, Kids, like all that is all that rich stuff we're doing as scientists, not least because the taxpayers often fund our research, but just, you know, part of being a functional human being is kind of like telling people what you do and, and making it relevant and exciting and important. I, I, think, I think that should be recognised by promotion, tenure committees equally. You know, they, there's, there's got to be emphasis on obviously research and teaching, but there should be value placed on that aspect of the things we do because some of those things keep the scientific world going round, don't they? Like telling people about what you do, clearly, coherently, and influencing policy. It's it, it sometimes takes a bit of a back seat, but I and I think I feel that, at least in Imperial in the UK, that it's becoming more and more important, this word called impact, you know, demonstrating impact is as important as quality and quality in inverted commas, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, that's funny because I feel like that's sort of, you know, John and I started this podcast to make a broader impact that was actually meaningful versus, you know, you're just writing it down because that's what you're supposed to do. So I think this is kind of this preprint thing lives in that sector. That's really cool. So let's say that I have had my paper uploaded for a while and I either received some excellent comments or have done some more science or I have submitted it and it is now published and I want to put the post print up. Can I revise that submission and have sort of a, a, a get like history of the changes to that? Or do I submit it as a new submission? How does that work? Um, so there, there's a, a, a couple aspects to that. So if you've sent the paper off for peer review and it's been accepted and it's going to be, be published, um, you'll, you'll typically get a, another DOI for that final peer-reviewed paper. Um, you can then come back to Earth Archive, um, log into your specific preprint, and add that DOI to the, the page for your preprint. And so when someone comes to Earth Archive, they'll see, okay, so here's the preprint version that I can download and read, but I could also follow this other link to see the final um, journal submission. Um, alternatively, if you wanted to make revisions prior to submitting it to a journal for peer review, uh, you can do that as well. So you can come back to Earth Archive, you can upload uh, a new version of your, your manuscript, you can upload additional data, additional software. Um, and it it's still has the same DOI, um, it's just that's the way that um, the infrastructure was implemented. So you, it's still the same citable um, record, although it, it does have additional um, 
version history attached to it. So if you went to that DOI, you would see the, the provenance that there were previous versions that came before it. And um, you do have access to those previous versions if someone wanted to, to download and, and explore those. Okay. And then so the, I guess for the last question that I had anyway in this main discussion about Earth Archive is who you've mentioned a couple times the the open science framework that's supporting this so who's footing that bill and how do we know that that's going to be a, a persistent service that this is going to uh, hang around for a very very long time even though these dois are perpetually green uh, so the open science framework is a is the, the name given to the technology um, infrastructure that, that we're using. Um, that comes out of a group called the Center for Open Science, uh, with his, which is a nonprofit based in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. And so we, we've been partnering with them. Um, they've been allowing us to use this open science framework technology to host uh, Earth Archive. Um, but Earth Archive is just one of many preprint systems that, that they offer. Uh, I believe there's about 20 yeah, or so. Yeah, I think so, just under, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, Center for Open Science is offering um, this preprint capability in a number of different uh, domains. Um, Chris and I just happen to be representing the, the earth science uh, side of things. Um, so the Center for Open Science is a much larger endeavor into open science, and they have a number of um, uh, grants that they've been awarded. They have a... Um, a small endowment and so there's some funding there to keep this going um, for at least the foreseeable future um, again you know we'll have to continue proposing and looking for additional sorts of sources of funding um, you know in the long term but uh, it seems to be pretty stable and and even you know worst case scenario um, you know I hope it doesn't go away but let's just say worst case scenario you know they run out of money and they, they close up shop um, they themselves are based on open science and open software, and so they will gladly hand us all of the software and all of the papers that have been submitted up to that point, so we could take those and you know, start Earth Archive somewhere else if we, if we had to. But, yeah, hopefully it's not going to come to that. Yeah, it feels like it's... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so Shannon, did you have any other questions before we wrap up? Uh, sorry, I haven't been paying attention. I'm too busy writing on my preprint on PMAT. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> You're late. Okay, so in that case, I had a couple of final questions that I thought would be fun to discuss with you all. And that one is what we ask all of our guests at the end is, what technology are you most excited about right now? And I'm going to uh, append that as well with what piece of technology do you want to dump out of your stocking this year? <laughs> oh, um, what this, you're going to laugh at me, aren't you? Because I'm going to say something which everybody else is like, this has been going on from like, you know, the Miocene or something. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've learned a lot about Slack and the integration between things like Gmail and Lumio and all of these different amazing bits of kit which sort of speak to each other and they put things in my calendar automatically and I do something in Google Docs and it appears in the Slack chat. I mean, does that sound really kind of medieval? Yeah. I mean, that's like, I'm not sure. No, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because it sounds so much like me. I love it so much when I'm like, John, this thing exists. And he's like, yeah, I've been yeah. doing that for 30 years. And I'm like, like but you're not so 30. It's, I don't it's basically witchcraft to me as far as I'm concerned, but it works. Yes. So. <laughs> 
I, 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 agree. I tell you, out of all of the benefits of preprints, seeing the technological advances that Chris has had over the past couple <laughs> months is right up there at the top of my list. <laughs> I should point out, you know, I'm not that. I, I use sort of fairly complex software and hardware, and I'm only 40 years old, but yeah, like this is all news to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I really think that's sort of where my um, where my question about um, you know potentially factoring into job reviews because you know sometimes people that are older than you and in charge don't appreciate how how advanced yeah. this stuff is sometimes. <laughs> well, and then so the uh, I guess the follow up to that would be where do you think that scientific publishing and communication will be in ten years? Tom should answer that. I think. I might, I, might not be, I might not be around here that much longer if I can't keep up with the technology. I might be doing something else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully preprints are uh, right at the forefront, that they're part of job applications and, and tenure reviews. And um, I, one, one area of all of this that really intrigues me um, is the programmatic access to all of this and the connections to... Uh, some of the advances that we're seeing in, in you know, areas like data science and, and machine learning. And um, I've kind of just been playing around with the uh, programming access to Earth Archive and just being able to, uh, you know, write software that searches for, for papers. And um, I was playing around with, you know, Google has this text-to-speech uh, software library. And so just grabbing a preprint and feeding it through there and having, you know, your laptop read a paper to you and, it just seems like there's so many intriguing directions we can go and, you know, recommendation systems for, for papers and, um, you know, all these things that we see like on Amazon and Netflix and, you know, you watch this movie, so maybe you'd like also like this movie and bringing those kinds of things into um, geosciences. It's really intriguing and being able to explore the, the network of who's connected to who and what the co-authorship uh, all looks like. and. I guess I'm incredibly biased being a computer scientist, but I'm very intrigued by uh, <laughs> the, the programmatic side of things and, and um, communicating our, our science and making publishing um, a little bit more efficient that way. Yeah, I was going to say as well, Tom, one thing that's very exciting is, is, you, know, is we've, you know, we've had a few negative responses about Earth Archive. His scientists are very, very bold, aren't they, at like yeah. exploring new ideas, trying new things, trying to find new things out. So there's always a a natural um, inquisitiveness about us. And therefore, that's why I think to think that in 10 years' time, the publishing situation and preprints are not going to be part of the common lexicon is strange to me that people think we've already got the best solution we can for scholarly communications. We established that in the 80s and 90s. And now all we'd have is the internet to kind of make it quicker. But I just think scientists, in a way, even if they're a bit reluctant because the words are all new and it all feels a bit scary... I just think they're just going to get on board, whether it's with preprints and earth archives specifically. I just think it will change, don't you? I mean, it, it's going to, because that's just how we're built. Right. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, that's one thing that's probably we can say for certain is not going to look like it does today in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, this just sort of came to mind in this discussion, but do you think in 10 years that when you're looking at a paper, you're going to be looking at a PDF that is a digital representation of a thing that we would have printed on paper in the 80s or 90s, or is it going to be some sort of a more interactive format? I, I would hope that it's 
a more interactive format. Um, you know, I would love in 10 years to be able to look at a paper and, you know, in addition to, you know, and maybe I still do read through the PDF in 10 years, but having some sort of capability to say, okay, now show me the data set that was used in this paper. Okay, well, what if I tried this other algorithm on that same data set? Would I get the same results as the authors did? And just having that interactive capability to play with the data, play with the algorithms, and, and make it more of a, um, uh, what's, I don't know what the word would be, but more it's more of a, a kind of an entity that you can play with than a static paper. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many times recently when looking at graphs and papers on my iPad, I've tried to zoom or rotate the graph <laughs> <laughs> and couldn't. Uh, <laughs> And I would like that to be a thing that could happen, especially with some of these really complicated, you know, like a 3D plot or a 3D seismic survey, being able to scan through that in the paper instead of have these two views that the author deemed the perfect views to show us. I, yeah. I, I, do you know how many times I've punched my Mac in the face trying to use the touch screen that I have on my <laughs> Windows computer? Like, <laughs> same thing. <laughs> All right, well, guys, is there anything that you would like to add before we wrap up? I don't think so. Do you, Chris, you have anything? No, uh, just a huge thank you for having us on. Um, you know, the chance to talk about Earth Archives is very important to us, but it's always just nice to hear complementary and contrasting and competing views of what we're trying to do because that's ultimately going to shape what we do going forward because, you know, we're not claiming that this is the solution or it's, you know, we're not, we're not, in, you know, we're definitely not inflexible. We're, we're, we're taking on board everything. So discussions like this are super helpful. Yeah, I would agree. So th yes, thank you again for having us. No, this was super great. We really appreciate all this time. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, Shannon. Well, now that we know all about preprint servers and the Earth Archive, it's time for something totally different. <laughs> Is it really different? I mean, I guess so, yeah. Well, we're still talking about science results, and it is a paper, but this has nothing to do with geology whatsoever. That means it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! I'm sorry, John. This does have to do with geology. We have talked about the crystallization of chocolate and how it affects how it, affects, um, how it looks, so it does have something to do with geology. It's true. We did have that XRD paper of chocolate bars. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so this is called Chocolate Consumption, Cognitive Function, and Nobel Laureates. Uh, and this was sent in to us by listener Daryl, who thought that we would find this amusing. And we found it so amusing. Here it is in Fun Paper Friday. Uh, <laughs> Man, these medical journals. So this is from the New England Journal of Medicine um, by Masserly. And this is fantastic. And it's exactly what it sounds like. If you eat more chocolate, are you smarter? Yes. <laughs> well, the correlation could go the other way as well. It could, exactly. Um, so what he's done is looked at, he said, okay, since there is actually data on how much chocolate gets consumed, right? But how do you look at large populations and figure out their cognitive abilities? And so uh, the author, author has decided to look at number of Nobel laureates per country as an example of cognitive function. 
Exactly. So he said, you know, there's all of this data that these things called dietary flavonoids mm, uh, are very good for your mind. <laughs> So right. they increase your performance on cognitive tests. They actually can show a reduction of dementia risk or even some, a mild reversal mm-hmm. of onset of dementia. And he said, well, I wonder what parameters we can look at, like you said, and came up with this. We're going to look at noble laureates per capita. Uh, and luckily, there is a Wikipedia page for that. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> and there's also several websites that... Uh, estimate chocolate consumption of countries. And I say estimate because, of course, this is not an exact thing that we're going to be doing here. Exactly. Uh, But it came down to you plot these on a graph and see if it looks like there's a correlation, and then we can do some statistics. And it's a massive correlation, actually, like massively correlatable, especially if you throw out Sweden. It's a little bit of an outlier. But, I mean, there's a big correlation between chocolate consumption in kilograms per year per capita and the number of Nobel laureates per 10 million population. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And I love this graph because obviously the data points are little flags. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you know, the R is 0.791. I've seen nature papers with less correlation than this. Exactly. Uh, and then it says if, it thro- <laughs> if you throw out Sweden, it's 0.862. <laughs> yeah, with P of less than 0. 0.001. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> So this is a very strongly correlated thing. Um, and I love this because basically you can come out of this with the prescription of how much chocolate do you need to eat to get smarter? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you can assign a number of if you want your country to have more Nobel laureates, uh, you need to feed this much more chocolate per year to your population. Exactly. Which is 0.4 kilograms of chocolate per capita. I don't know if I can take that down. I'm not a big chocolate fan. So, but I mean, I'll do well, it. I'll do it for science. I mean, I, I can take one for the team on that. Okay, uh, good deal. The the uh, interesting thing is also there is a minimum effective dose of two kilograms per year. Yes. <laughs> oh, I thought that was pretty good too. Which, if if you think about this, uh, I mean, these are okay. They're numbers, and there's a correlation. And I was trying to put some physical things to this mm-hmm. because I, I don't know how much chocolate I eat per year probably more than the minimum effective dose that's for sure yeah but you think about it okay so in the united states the average is five kilograms per year per capita so we're behind five (laughs) kilograms of chocolate that's a lot (laughs) per year per person but it's also not surprising Well, if you're having trouble with this because we're still on the imperial system and only 15 16ths of the world's population uses the metric system uh it's us uh, malaysia and like one other country right it's so embarrassing right Uh, (laughs) so it's about 11 pounds a year per person on average so a uh a baby people eat a baby's worth of chocolate i mean you look at those giant chocolate kisses that you see in the store right now that are like three to five pounds you say those are huge yeah you eat two to three of those a year god that's probably true (laughs) i say i don't like chocolate but i mean if i just look at that in terms of volume no, I probably do. Hmm. Yeah. Impressive. So uh, anyway, back <laughs> on the paper, uh, uh, there is, you know, okay, there's a correlation here. Does that imply causation? Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, there could be some other factor that is controlling both of these. Mm-hmm. Right. The correlation could go in either direction. It could be that countries with... Uh, 
more cognitively functional populations, these people know the health benefits of chocolate and therefore make a conscious effort to eat more. Mm -hmm. uh, or chocolate could be increasing the cognitive ability. Or it could be a purely spurious correlation. Right. Um, which, have, have you looked at the website spurious correlations before? Oh, no, but I'm definitely going to now. So I will link it in the show notes. Uh, I am going to pull up a few here. Um, I will say while we're talking about it that, this, you know, Sweden was an outlier, and I love the way that he handled this uh, in the paper, too, because uh, Sweden's chocolate consumption of 6.4 kilograms per year would predict that they have 14 Nobel laureates, and they have 32. And so I love that he says... <laughs> So, one cannot quite escape the notion that either the Nobel Committee in Stockholm has some inherent patriotic bias, or perhaps that the Swedes are particularly sensitive to chocolate and even minuscule amounts greatly enhance their cognition. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've got a few examples here. Um, correlation of 0.66, number of people who drowned by falling into a swimming pool, and number of films Nicolas Cage appeared in. Um... Per capita uh, consumption of cheese and number of people who died by becoming entangled in their bedsheets. Oh, my gosh. Uh, let's see. Um, Age uh, of Miss America and murders by steam, hot vapors, and hot objects. Correlation of 0.87. This is amazing. People who drowned after falling out of a fishing boat correlated with marriage rate in Kentucky. <laughs> correlation of point. Nine five two. So now that has to be a really true correlation, right? <laughs> exactly. So this paper is really mostly uh, just a fun <laughs> paper, uh, but it is an interesting thing, and it is something that you can cite when somebody says, "Do you really need that other chocolate bar?" Or they also talk about the health benefits of things like a glass of wine and so on. Right. So wine and chocolate, you're really just pushing for. You're trying to make your P and T case stronger. Exactly. <laughs> oh, but that negative correlation exists too. She's probably going to ingest a lot more if it's not strong enough. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> well, Daryl, thanks for sending this fun paper in. If you have any data on your yearly chocolate consumption or rate of Nobel laureates in your family per capita, <laughs> We would be very interested to see those data. You can send those along with your fun paper suggestions and any other comments to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send those to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can also post it on our Slack chat room. We're at the Software Underground, and we are the Don't Panic channel. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. Don't forget to make us Christmas lights blink. And I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 